Hello, First Baptist Church of Keller family. I welcome you to our systematic theology class that meets weekly online and uh, over the air. And so I welcome you to lecture four. And today's subject is a continuation of last week, which is Christology, which is the study of Christ. And each week I want to give you um, some pegs sort of to hang your theological hat on in each area of theology. And just by way of review, we said last week, one of the things that we need to emphasize about Jesus is that he is one person, but he has two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature, but the divine nature doesn't absorb or do violence to the human nature or vice versa. Uh, Both natures are complete. And we said last week as a mathematical statement, he's 100% God, yet 100% man. Sometimes you'll hear Christ referred to theologically as the God-man. We don't want to say that he's a mixture of God and man, uh, but he is altogether God and and altogether man. And and we use those positive statements sort of as fences or ditches, if you will, to keep us away from uh, error or even heresy. Uh, Obviously, this is a very nuanced and difficult doctrine to grasp, but Uh, We are prayerful that the Lord will help us to understand what he has revealed to us in his word. Uh, Today we're going to move away from the nature of Christ and talk about um, the work of Christ. That is, why Jesus came to earth, how he came, uh, what he did when he was in a human body. And uh, the classic biblical text that sort of summarizes all of those statements and questions is um, in the book of Philippians, uh, specifically uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's a passage of Scripture that I quote very often from the pulpit here. And let me read it now. Of course, the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. He said, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so in those seven verses, we find at least four positive facts about the nature of Jesus. Verse 6 tells us that he is preexistent. That is, he did not uh, become um, God at the moment of conception or the moment of, of birth. Paul says that he existed, past tense, in the form of God. And then in verse 7, we see how he took on human flesh. We call that, by the way, his incarnation, which is one of your vocabulary words. The the root of incarnate is carne. And if any of you like Mexican food, you know that that means meat or flesh. And and really, one way we describe um, the incarnation is that God took on flesh. That is, he took on a human body. And so he says in verse 7, he emptied himself, that is, of the prerogatives and glories of heaven, that he had enjoyed from eternity past, and he took on the form not just of a man, but as a humble bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself. 
And so we sometimes call this this uh, condescension of Christ, that is to go down. He went from being glorified constantly in heaven to um, being humiliated in many cases and being mocked and abused um, and, and condescending to become one of us. And then, of course, uh, at his crucifixion, we see in verse 8, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Crucifixion, um, the root word is crux or cross, which signifies the means by which Jesus died and, and became the atonement. But then, of course, uh, the ultimate reason Paul writes these words is to get to his exaltation. To exalt is to glorify or magnify or make much of. And remember, we said that the reason Jesus could have joy, even in his passion and in, even in his death, is that he looked past that suffering to the other side of what came, which is his exaltation. And he says it here so clearly that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, curios, sovereign, uh, to the glory of, of God the Father. So that is what Orthodox Christianity teaches about who Jesus is. Um, I think one of the first questions we need to ask of anyone from any faith tradition that seeks to be accepted as, as Orthodox Christian is, who is Jesus? Um, anytime I'm introduced to a person who comes from um, a denomination or um, even a cult, um, traditionally, I will say, what, what do you teach or what does your denomination, what does your organization teach about who Jesus is? And I think that's a good litmus test to start with of whether we are to accept that person as a brother in Christ or not. Uh, so I've got a little chart in front of me here of some of the major religions of the world and what they teach about the person and work of Jesus. Of course, um, the Nicene Creed, in which we uh, studied a little bit last week, says this about Jesus, that he is the second person of the Trinity, He's the incarnation of God, he is the son of God, and, and he is the savior. We would, we would be in agreement with that as Baptists and, and as evangelical Christians. But then, for example, what do um, Hindus teach about Jesus? A good portion of the world's population self-identifies as Hindu. Well, they, they would say that, uh, and, and by the way, this is a broad brush. Different Hindus would say different things, but in general, Hindus would say that Jesus was a good man, he was a wise man, maybe he was even an incarnation of God akin to Krishna, but they certainly wouldn't see him as exclusively God. Islam, over a billion people in the world self-identify as Muslims, and Muslims would say of Jesus that he was a true prophet sent by God. They have a high view of Jesus in that regard, but it stops short of seeing that Jesus had a divine nature. In fact, Jesus, although they would say he's a great prophet, would place him below Muhammad, for example, as a prophet. Um, Buddhists would say that Jesus was wise and an enlightened man who taught things very similar to, to Buddha. But again, they would stop short of saying that he's God in the flesh. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, we've talked about some in here before. They would say that Jesus is the Son of God or the Word of God, but they would deny that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so that, again, is a pretty good litmus test. If, a, if an organization or an individual denies the deity of Jesus Christ, 
um, they are really outside of Orthodox Christianity, and, and I would not call them uh, a brother or a sister in Christ. So uh, today I want to also look at the offices of Christ. In the Old Testament, there were three offices in the Old Covenant. Those are prophet and priest and king. And we see that in the New Testament, Jesus fulfilled the role of all three of those offices. John Calvin was the first one really to codify this and to write about it. But of course, it's biblical truth. A prophet in the Old Testament was someone who spoke on behalf of God to the people. That is, he speaks out God's word. Uh, One of the phrases that's associated with the prophet is, thus saith the Lord. And so he's speaking with the authority of God and not just his own opinions. Uh, My apprentice Tyler's with us today, and I've asked him to read some of these scriptures associated with the three offices of Christ. And the first is that of prophet is found in Deuteronomy 18, 15, through 18. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. And so it's obvious that uh, the Old Testament predicted that when Messiah came, that he would be a prophet. More importantly, uh, in Matthew, in the New Testament, chapter 13, Jesus referred to himself as a prophet. Uh, He does that again in Matthew chapter 16. It says, uh, the people consider Jesus one of the prophets. Um, Matthew twenty-one eleven is one of the passages that we see the triumphal entry, which we studied together here from the Gospel of Luke on Sunday morning just a few weeks ago. And you recall that the people cut down branches and laid their coats in the road, and they recognized Jesus as, as the promised one. Um, so, so Jesus speaks the word of God. Uh, but more than that, there, there were many prophets who spoke on behalf of God. The Bible describes Jesus in John chapter 1 as the Word of God. He is above um, and greater than all of the prophets. The book of Hebrews states this very clearly. Chapter 1 of Hebrews says that in the past God has spoken by the prophets in many portions and in many ways, but now he has spoken most clearly Uh, through his son. And although he was a prophet, he was much more than a prophet. The second office that Jesus fulfills is is that of priest. And so if a prophet is one who speaks to the people on behalf of God, a priest is one who intercedes for the people to God. Uh, You remember that God instituted through the old covenant a system of sacrifices. Because of the people's sin, Uh, God gave to Moses and his brother Aaron a prescription of how they were to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people for various sins that they committed. And, of course, uh, we see that uh, fulfilled uh, throughout the Old Testament. But the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, indicates that Jesus now has uh, fulfilled 
that office of priest. Tyler, read for us, please, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So clearly Jesus is now our high priest. You remember that one of the functions of the high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies, uh, which was the interchamber of uh, the tabernacle as they were wandering in the wilderness and ultimately of the temple once it was built. And uh, only once a year could someone enter that room where the Ark of the Covenant was housed, and that had to be the high priest. And so he did that on the Day of Atonement after he had ceremonially cleansed himself He went in and sprinkled blood upon the mercy seat, which is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, the Lord then uh, overlooked the sins of the people for one more year. Well, the Bible indicates in Hebrews that Jesus has become our high priest. But again, he's greater than any Old Testament priest. The Old Testament priest had to continually be offering those sacrifices. There were daily sacrifices, morning and evening sacrifices, because the people sinned all the time. And then there was that annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. But when Jesus um, completed his work on the cross, you remember that he uttered, it is finished. That is, that there's no more need for this sacrificial system. And of course, the Lord gave a, a wonderful a picture of that when the veil which separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn, the scripture says, from top to bottom, indicating this was a work of God. And uh, there's no longer a a need for the temple. There's no longer a need for a sacrificial system because Jesus is not only the priest, he's also the sacrifice. And the scripture indicates that he is the once for all sacrifice. It never has to be repeated. And of course, we've been stressing uh, the importance of the concept of the resurrection. When Jesus was resurrected, it showed a number of things, primarily that God the Father was satisfied with the work of Christ. And, um, you know, there's several theological terms that talk about God's justice being satisfied. One of those is propitiation. Uh, The Bible says that Jesus is our propitiation or he is our satisfaction. Um, so, So God the Father is altogether pleased with the sacrifice of the Son, and therefore it never has to be repeated. But there's a third uh, office that Jesus fulfills and is fulfilling today, and that is his office as as king. So, So what does a king do? We don't have kings and queens here in America. Uh, there are a few places in the world that, that still have true kings and queens. Um, but a king had absolute power. He was a sovereign. Uh, he ruled over the people, and whatever he did was, was considered right. Well, God rules over his people for his glory and, and, and their good. And uh, Tyler also has some, some scriptures related to that. John 19, 19 through 22, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Revelation 19.16 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we see there that that Jesus was uh, prophesied in the Old Testament uh, to be uh, the king, one who would come, the government would be on his shoulders, Isaiah said. And uh, In the New Testament, he was recognized as, as king. The angels uh, proclaimed his birth as a, a royal birth. Uh, Luke chapter 1, um, the prophecies that, that went along with uh, the birth of Jesus had to do with, with his royalty, um, his kingship. Uh, John one forty nine. When Jesus was choosing his disciples, one of them, Nathaniel, when he first saw Jesus, recognized and called him the king of Israel. And of course, again, that, that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, just a few days before Jesus' crucifixion, the people recognized him as king. That's why they laid their coats in his path. That's what you would do for a king. And of course, Jesus commandeered that donkey to be his means of, res- uh, of transportation. That's what kings do. They commandeer uh, property and people for the, for their own usefulness. Um, they do that because they have the right of sovereignty. But, but I think probably um, the greatest indication that Jesus is king is not, as Tyler read from, from John 19, the mocking that people put the sign over his uh, head on his cross uh, that he was king of the Jews, but that God declares him to be the king of kings at, at his second coming. Revelation 19, 16, as, as we just heard, um, when Jesus comes again, he's not going to be riding that foal of a donkey. He's going to be riding a white war horse and the sign, the, the banner, a badge that he's going to carry de- declares his title as King of Kings and, and Lord of Lords. And so uh, Jesus rules over all the universe. He, re- he rules over all of his kingdom and uh, we owe ultimate and full allegiance to him. In fact, our sermon Sunday had to do with authority. And if you remember the definition I gave you for authority is the right to make commands and to expect obedience. And Jesus has given us commands, the most important of which is to all humanity is to repent. And he has the right to uh, expect obedience. And for those who obey and uh, submit to him and his lordship. There's the promise of heaven. And for those who will not bow their knee uh, to the lordship of Jesus Christ, there is judgment and wrath awaiting. And so uh, those are um, the offices. Uh, And let me walk you through also some other vocabulary words, many of which you'll be familiar with. Um, But you need to, to get a good working vocabulary as it relates to um, Christology. Uh, And I'll just walk through these very rapidly, and then we're going to hear from our guest today. Uh, The first word is uh, pre-existence. That is to differentiate between the false notion that Jesus began his existence at some point in time. Again, going back to Genesis chapter 1, we looked at last week uh, when God said, let us make man in our image. We understand that uh, the second person of the Trinity was present. John chapter 1 makes that clear. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he is preexistent. That is, uh, he existed as the second person of Trinity, the eternal Son of God, uh, since time immemorial. Uh, The second word is his incarnation, which we mentioned earlier, which means the time in history where he took on flesh, that is, when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit 
in the the womb of Mary. Now, related to his incarnation is an important concept uh, known as the virgin birth. Uh, Orthodox Christianity has always taught that Jesus' conception was miraculous in that he was not born of an earthly father, but instead he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Uh, Once he was born, of course, he lived a sinless life. The Bible says he was um, tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, Christ died for us. And of course, that is essential for his mission to be completed. If Jesus had sinned in any regard, he would have been no longer fit to die in our place because our problem is that we're sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. So we need uh, what the ancient theologians used to call alien righteousness. That is righteousness outside of ourselves. And of course, Jesus broke in to human history and lived that perfect life. And then uh, he suffered in that body. Uh, you know, he, he got hungry. He, he got um, tired. He, he, he was um, fully human in that regard. But when we speak of his passion, we're speaking particularly of that week leading up unto his death where he was uh, beaten, really tortured, uh, whipped, a crown of thorns placed in his brow, and and ultimately uh, crucified, which is our next word, crucifixion. Crucifixion is the concept of of Jesus dying on the cross. Um, Of course, thankfully, we know that even though he literally died, The grave could not hold him, and death could not keep him, and on the third day, he was resurrected. So that's the word you need to have firmly in your vocabulary as a Christian. The resurrection is the literal bodily uh, resurrection that Jesus was dead in, in the very real sense, and yet he lives again. And then we know that uh, the Bible teaches that for about 40 days, Jesus appeared to literally hundreds of eyewitnesses in his resurrected body. And then on that 40th day, he went out to the Mount of Olives where he ascended into heaven in their presence, Uh, literally uh, going from from earth back into heaven. And there were many eyewitnesses of that. Um, and, And we call that his ascension. The root word, of course, there is to ascend, to go up. And uh, the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, you think, may think, well, that's not very important, but, but really, I think the reason that Jesus allowed many witnesses to see his ascension is there was a clear breaking point. Remember that he had said to his disciples that he was going away, but if he went away, he would send another one like him, that is the Holy Spirit, the, the comforter, who would lead them to all truth. And so here's that, that point. He ascends into heaven. His work on earth is totally and completely finished, and now he ascends to to take his role at the right hand of authority, ruling uh, from heaven. And so uh, we call that his ascension. And and once he uh, was back into heaven, uh, the scripture says that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and and theologians call that his session uh, as the righteous judge of the universe. uh, You know, if you've ever served uh, in a courtroom Um, on a jury, for example, um, someone is bound to announce after hitting a gavel, the court is now in session. Well, Jesus' session is when he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And then, of course, uh, from that point on till today, which is a period of about 2,000 years so far, we have been in what uh, many theologians call the age of grace or the church age, 
where through the Holy Spirit and through uh, evangelists um, that the offer of salvation is going uh, to every tribe and nation on earth. And one day that age of grace will be over and then Christ will come again for his church. And we call that the, the second coming. And so we're really going to wait probably until we get to the uh, session on eschatology to get very deep into the, the concept of second coming. But those are eight or nine uh, terms associated with the work of Jesus. And uh, just, just by way of review, um, as you think about Christ, you need to understand his nature, that he's one person with two natures, and both those natures are complete. He's altogether God. He's altogether man. And in his uh, human body... Uh, he fulfilled all of the Old Testament offices of prophet. That is, he proclaimed the word of God, and he is the word of God. He fulfilled uh, the office of priest. That is, he interceded on behalf of his people. And not only is he the priest, he's also the sacrifice. As John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's the once for all sacrifice. That's very important, never having uh, to be repeated. And then, of course, ultimately, as Paul said in Philippians 2, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is, he has absolute sovereign authority over his creation. And so um, I hope that you'll review those from time to time. If you have questions, uh, email me, text me, call me, uh, and one day hopefully we can see each other again face-to-face. And joining me now is our guest by phone. This is Dr. Jody Anderson. He is joining us from uh, the great state of Alabama, Guntersville, Alabama, to be exact. Dr. Anderson, welcome to the program. Thanks, Keith. It's good to be with you, brother. Dr. Anderson, you and I went to seminary together at Southwestern where you got your uh, Master of Divinity, and you went on to uh, take your Ph.D. from Mid-America Seminary in, in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, you've pastored in Texas, Mississippi, and Alabama. And uh, I know you're married to Allison, and you have four beautiful children. Uh, how's everyone in uh, your family doing through this coronavirus? We are uh, all are well, thankfully, in these uh, strange and unprecedented times. We thank God that uh, things are, are going well. Well, I know that uh, your Ph.D. dissertation had to do with uh, Puritan family worship. Um, can you give us a little review or overview about how the Puritans uh, conducted family worship? Sure. They uh, wanted to be sure that they were faithful in their homes and that their families supported what was taking place on the Lord's Day week to week. And so family worship is essentially very much like what you would find in your in your local church in corporate worship on Sunday mornings, you would have reading of scripture, uh, teaching of scripture, uh, the, the, the dad, the father, the husband, he would be the one who would lead out in this. And you'd have singing of songs and prayers. And, um, uh, the Puritans, I would also like to throw into this, uh, catechism to, uh, instruct their children in the theology of the uh, confessions of faith in those days. And so it's really quite simple. And I think they, they can overthink it uh, often, but uh, it's, it's meeting for the Puritans. They, they aimed it twice a day. I think that's a bit, but we, we aim uh, to 
do it weekly. And so I think that's a good starting point and uh, just to gather family together to, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so let me piggyback on that. Uh, you wear several hats, uh, as most of us do. You, you have held the position of pastor. You are a dad. Uh, you have taught as a professor at a number of schools, uh, a number of conferences. How do you differentiate how you teach systematic theology, whether it's to your children or to a local congregation uh, or to uh, an academic environment? Yeah, that's a good question. With my household and with my kids, I I try to incorporate it in the day-to-day conversations, and uh, it it could be anything that prompts a discussion, something we see on the news, something my kids are reading for school, and just really informal. Uh, I will introduce them as they grow older to uh, uh, more in-depth things, obviously, but I uh, found YouTube is a, is a helpful resource there. Uh, you can find, uh, I find I like Todd Friels, for instance, or on Wretched on YouTube to introduce concepts into the household, keeping it simple and uh, keeping it consistent. Uh, as a pastor in church, uh, you're wanting to uh, make sure that, these, that theology doesn't become so abstract that it doesn't... Uh, seem to apply to the day-to-day lives of your people. So you want to make sure that you don't uh, dumb it down. You want to, to you want the profundity of these great truths to, to come across, but you're trying to do it in a way that is not in the high ivory tower, so to speak, uh, kind of way. And uh, when I've taught it in the seminary, I'll, I will press my students a bit further to read some more uh, pressing works that will challenge them. But then in the discussions, you want to try to bring it into real life and how that fits within the life of their homes and their churches, too. So at every step of the way, you're, you're, you're aiming at application. And uh, theology, the best definition that I've found by William Ames is living to God. And that's what you're aiming at, life lived toward God. Well, our topic for our class this week is Christology. Last week we looked at the nature of Christ, and today we're looking at the work of Christ. Can you give us a little application of how you teach the work of Christ and his offices in particular? Well, the doctrine of Christ is obviously central to Christianity, or you have no Christianity. And so who Christ is is... is uh, it, it's it's of monumental importance, or you walk away from the Christian faith as we know it, and uh, who Christ is as truly God and truly man, or fully God and fully man, Christ as the God-man is essential, and that bleeds over into uh, you know, his work. And uh, when we talk about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we tend to talk about it in the terms of the three offices that he occupies, the prophetic office, the priestly office, and the kingly office. And these things uh, are all predicted in the Old Testament scriptures and fulfilled in the New Testament scriptures. Um, Christ as prophet brings the word of God to God's people. He declares forth the word of the Lord as Christ in his priestly office 
is the coming Redeemer who atones for the sins of the people. He represents the people to God as the priest would do, but in a higher uh, glorified way where our sins are removed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, Christ in his kingly office is the, the, the king of all creation, and he is the not only the head of all creation, but he's the head of the church. He has a, a spiritual kingship and a universal kingship. And, uh, and we mirror these things in our lives. As, as Christ is preeminently the word made flesh, so he is a prophet unlike any other prophet. Uh, he indwells us, and we have the, the obligation to proclaim the word. Uh, we uh, have the the obligation to take the gospel of Christ uh, there as the priestly office. We mirror him. We are called a royal priesthood by Peter. We can go directly to the throne of the Almighty and, uh, and have a hearing there. We can go with boldness. We can pray and intercede uh, for others uh, in that way. And we uh, are joint heirs with Christ. We inherit this kingdom so that we don't have to, in days like we're living in especially, worry about is the American government going to take care of us. Uh, ultimately, that can only go so far. We're thankful for government and, government and God ordains it, but uh, we mirror that we are in Christ joint heirs and we mirror this kingly office in the sense that we're part of a kingdom, not of this world. The Lord Jesus himself said, uh, to his disciples in the Great Commission, Matthew 28:18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And Ephesians makes clear that he is the head over all things to the church. And so uh, I like the way that Paul will describe as he goes in his gospel ministry to the Romans in Romans chapter 1 that he's preaching uh, so that the spread all the nations would be the what he calls the obedience of the faith, meaning that if you have this living faith from him, that's a gift of God to you through the preaching of the gospel, it comes with obedience. You, you're, you're trusting in Jesus Christ who is king. There is uh, no other Jesus Christ uh, without him being king, so he has the authority over us. And uh, he graciously gives us uh, what we need to walk in him. We call them the means of grace. It's God's hand extended to us in his son through his spirit that we are uh, we're obligated to prayer, Bible study, to assemble and gather with the people of God, uh, to take the, the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and, and go through the initiation of uh, the ordinance of baptism. These are means of grace to us that we will, uh, that God graciously gives us that, so that we can live in, in obedience in a way that's pleasing to him, as Romans 12 talks about, as a living sacrifice to him. So I think we def definitely need to make sure that as we're proclaiming Jesus Christ, we're proclaiming as the king of all the universe, and that he calls every man everywhere to repent uh, and to repent of their sins and to, and to 
and to trust him. So I think repentance is at least one of those things that has to be thrown back in there instead of just uh, trying to somehow make Jesus Lord of your life or just saying yes to Jesus. Uh, Christ is Lord, and he demands that we bow before him. And, uh, and all who do receive his mercy and grace, and that's the beauty and the glory of the gospel uh, that the broken, repentant soul may have him, may have Christ. Well, we appreciate uh, your time today. Uh, is there a specific uh, way we can pray for you and your family, Dr. Anderson? Sure. Uh, just, uh, I'm in a period of transition, my family and I. I'm just praying about what the Lord has next for me. Uh, 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 as far as uh, as far as future, future ministry, a couple of uh, things on the table that uh, that I'm excited about and uh, been praying about. And it's been a, it's been a joy to be with you, Keith, and likewise love your family, praying for them. Uh, send them my love, please. Well, let's close our class today uh, in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the things that we've studied and thought through today. I thank you that before any of us were ever born, Jesus was alive, the second person of the Trinity and his uh, eternality and his preexistent state. And then, Father, we're grateful at just the right time, the perfect time in history, the time that you chose. Jesus took on human flesh in the womb of a virgin named Mary at his incarnation, and that when he was born as men are born, he lived a perfect life for about 30 years, tempted in all ways we are yet without sin, knowing that uh, pain and suffering awaited him in his passion and yet, for the joy set before him, the scripture says he endured that suffering, even the shameful suffering of the cross at his crucifixion. And so, Father, we rejoice, though, as we've been studying these last few weeks at the resurrection, that death could not hold him, um, that the grave could not keep him, that on the third day he rose again, truly alive, and that for 40 days he was uh, borne witness to by many eyewitnesses, and at uh, the right moment he ascended in their presence back to your right hand where he is seated today, ever making intercession for us at his session. And he's coming again one day for his church. And we say with the church what we've been saying for 2,000 years, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Give us patience, give us zeal, give us boldness, to speak the truth for Christ until that day comes. And we ask all these things in his strong name. Amen. Amen.